Today, we're looking at the fact that we believe that Lord Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And uh, our scripture reading this morning is one that generally you only hear around Christmas time. But as we see today in this Easter season, there is a great connection between the manger and the cross. And it's perfectly right to be reading about the virgin birth this time of year and not just around Christmas time. I'd like to share two verses with you, which kind of are going to be underscoring what we're going to be talking about today. First in Matthew, uh, the first chapter, the 20th verse, we read, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then again in Luke, uh, the first chapter of the 35th verse, we read the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The first verse that I read uh, tells us what the angel said to Joseph to reassure him about Mary's pregnancy. The second verse is part of what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he announced that she would give birth to Jesus. And taken together, these verses form just a really good, think I, I think, introduction to this part of the Apostles' Creed that we're considering this morning. Now, as I said, we continue, we uh, are, uh, uh, we tend, is the right word, we tend to just consider uh, this passage and these passages during the Christmas season. But we're considering it today because the early Christians deemed this truth so highly that they included it in the first Christian creed. Because of its importance, I want to go over what this means and what is at stake uh, in these words that we affirm when we say the Apostles' Creed. When we affirm the Christian faith through the Apostles' Creed, we're making a claim about Jesus here that's grounded in the Holy Bible uh, that cannot be made about any other person. Jesus alone, his life did not begin with his birth or with his conception. Unlike every other human being whose beginning can be traced to a specific moment in time, we declare when we affirm the Apostles' Creed that the true life of Jesus Christ had no beginning because he is eternal he existed forever, forever with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And this is a claim that could not be made about anyone else. I want us to consider just quickly three questions about this today. First, what exactly do we mean when we say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? 
we mean five things at least. First, Jesus was born by the direct action of God. It's clear that no one was expecting anything like this. Joseph assumes the worst until an angel intervenes, and Mary is shocked and mystified by Gabriel's words. It happened because God willed it to happen, and for no other reason. God did it this way because he chose to do it this way. A virgin gives birth by the sovereign choice of the Almighty God. There's no other explanation. Second, no man was involved in the process. Not Joseph, not a Roman soldier, as uh, rumors started to try to uh, just uh, denigrate Jesus and uh, claim that his was not a virgin birth. Not any other man was involved. Third, Jesus had a human mother and no human father. Fourth, Jesus is thus fully human and fully divine. He is fully human because he comes forth from Mary's womb. He is fully divine because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is not half human and half divine. He is the God and man. He is God incarnate in human flesh. As they say in the Nicene Creed, to make this even clearer, very God of very God, very man of very man. This is something that the early Christian church underscored and thought was so important. Fifth, he is therefore without sin. Luke one thirty five calls him the Holy One meaning that he will be born without any taint of sin. He has no inherited sin from Adam, no sin nature, nothing in him to cause him to sin. He is holy in the truest and deepest meaning of that term. There is no sin in him or about him. In order for Jesus to be our Savior, three conditions had to be met. First, he must be a man. An angel could not die for our sins. An animal was not sufficient. He must truly share our humanity. Number two, he must be an infinite human being. A mere mortal could not bear the infinite price that must be paid for our sins. And number three, he must be an innocent man. A sinner could not die for the sins of others. The virgin birth guarantees that our Lord fulfills these three conditions because he's born of the Virgin Mary. He is fully human because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is fully God because he is born holy. He could remain sinless in thought, word and deed and thus be fully qualified to be our Savior. Next, exactly what took place when the Holy Spirit conceived the human life of Jesus Christ within Mary's womb. How could the God who is without limits somehow empty himself and enter the world as a human being born of a human mother? 
The most honest answer that we can give is this. We don't know what happened. It was a pure miracle, a miracle of the highest order to be compared with God saying, let there be light and light appearing out of darkness. The virginal conception of Jesus was a direct creative miracle of God. It's a mystery that we'll never fully understand. In these days of technology, we occasionally hear talk about science reproducing a, quote, virgin birth, unquote. Uh, but uh, no matter what the scientists may do in the field of genetic manipulation, cloning, uh, parthenogenesis, or any other advanced research, you can take all the scientists from the best labs, give them unlimited resources and a thousand years to work on it, and they will still be unable to duplicate the virginal conception of Jesus Christ. Only God himself could provide a life that is fully human, yet fully divine. Jesus Christ is truly God's one and only Son. This is a miracle and a mystery that lies beyond the realm of science. Luke 1.35 does offer us a little insight when the angel says that the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. Now that same verb was used in the Greek translation of Exodus 40.35 where it says, Moses could not enter the tent of meetings because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In Psalm 91.4, we see the same word uh, being used in a poetic image to describe God as covering his people. He will cover you with his feather, feathers, it says, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And these images give us uh, some idea of what happened. God overshadowed Mary with his personal, intimate presence that completely surrounded her just as a cloud surrounded and covered and filled the tabernacle. And this overshadowing protected her from all harm. She was a virgin before her conception and after her conception. Only God could have done this. Now through the virgin birth, God became man without ceasing to be God. The major problem with a sermon like this is that most of us really already believe in the virgin birth, even if we've never thought about it very much. We know we believe uh, because we uh, hear about it every December, as I've said before. So it's easy to put a sermon like this in the category of uh, nice, but doesn't really matter. And that would be a huge mistake because what we're covering here matters immensely. We can be certain that the early Christians didn't feel that way or they would not have included the phrases in the creed. 
What difference does it make that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Three important things that we have to consider. First of all is biblical authority. Since both Matthew and Luke explicitly teach the virgin birth, and John actually states it in a more poetic way when he says the word, meaning God himself, became flesh and dwelt among us. It puts before us a major question. Will we believe what scripture plainly teaches? For centuries, people didn't even bother with questioning that. But starting about 150 years ago, this became a major issue. The problem for us can be stated this way. The Bible tells us that Jesus entered the world in a supernatural way through a mighty miracle of God. It also tells us that Jesus' earthly life came to a climax with another mighty miracle, his bodily resurrection from the dead. And we all understand the significance of the resurrection. Because he lives, we will live also. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. But it's not the same with the virgin birth. For some reason, people want to discount the virgin birth when we compare it to the resurrection and try to say that it's not all that important. And this is a major point where our enemy, the devil, finds an entry into bringing doubt into people's hearts. It certainly was for me when I was young. I can remember being at a, um, at a church camp and there was a discussion being led by a minister of young teenagers, and he put forth this question, can you go to heaven and not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Now, the thing is that uh, he, was just, he, he, he laid out scripture, you see, and then he brought up this scripture. In the Bible, this is what it says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Does it say anything there about the virgin birth? So can you be saved without believing in the virgin birth? Now see, this is exactly what the devil likes to do. He takes scripture and twists it. It's his biggest ploy in attempting to pull us away from God. He likes to take the Bible and twist it and cause doubt. The first time we see this is the first time he shows up in the Garden of Eden. You remember what happened there? He starts a conversation with Eve and he said, didn't God say that you could not eat from any tree in the garden? And that's not what he said. So she misquotes scripture back to him. She doesn't get God's word right. She said, we can eat from any tree of the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we can't even touch that one. Now, God didn't say they couldn't touch it. You see, she added to God's word. 
and she didn't have it right. And since she wasn't really paying attention, then the devil knew he could get a foothold and he did. And humanity fell because he then said, uh, uh, you won't surely die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. And then it says that she took it and see, she didn't, she didn't die when she touched it. And she was thinking, even though God's word didn't say it, she thought if she touched it, she'd die. She didn't die. So then she took a bite and then she offered it to Adam. And then sin and death and corruption and every bad thing entered this world. It was no longer a perfect world. It fell because people messed up and didn't believe God's word or follow God's word. His word is important, people. He tried the same ploy with Jesus, didn't he? Three times in the wilderness, he brought up scripture trying to twist it. He took a truth. He took it out of context and he tried to twist it in order to get Jesus to sin. It didn't work. Thank goodness. Jesus remained sinless. And so then he could become our savior. The thing is, if you can't believe the first miracle, how can you believe the last miracle? If you doubt the virgin birth, how can you be certain about the resurrection? The Bible doesn't present the life of Christ uh, as a, a pick your miracle cafeteria style uh, sort of a thing where you can pick this miracle and reject that one. You got to take it all or none. The story of our Lord's earthly life comes to us as a seamless hope. We either take it all or we reject it all. There's no suitable middle ground option. So the question becomes, do we believe the Bible or don't we? Mel Gibson, during an interview with Diane Sawyer following uh, the release of The Passion, was asked if he believed every word of the Bible is true. And his answer was, and I'm so glad, immediate and unequivocal. And he said, yes. He said he believed every word of the Bible. Then he added, you have to believe it all. Either you believe all of it or none of it. And to that, I would add my strong amen. That's one reason the virgin birth matters. It's a question of biblical authority. And that is so, so important. I need to preach a whole sermon on that. And I think I've even got the beginnings of it already down. Next, the virgin birth forces us to confront what we believe about Jesus. Who is he? Where did he come from? At issue is the supernatural character of our Lord. Is he truly the son of God from heaven? If your answer is yes, you have no problem with the virgin birth. If your answer no, you'll have no reason to believe it. Is he just a prophet or is he more than a prophet? Is he a great teacher and nothing more? 
Uh, was he a martyr who died for his cause? Was he a revolutionary who never intended to start a religion? Is he a divine leader who came to teach us about God? Or is he God incarnate, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior? The virgin birth forces us off the fence about Jesus. It tells us that we cannot be neutral and we cannot say the stories of his birth do not matter. The fact that this is a miracle and a mystery doesn't let us off the hook. Those, who with, a, or those with an anti-supernatural bias will have no use for the virgin birth and they will explain it away. But those who believe in a supernatural Christ will find the virgin birth a mysterious miracle that instead of destroying their faith actually makes it stronger. As I said earlier, three conditions must be met in order for Jesus to be our Savior. He must be a man. He must be God. He must be sinless. The virgin birth made it possible for all those conditions to be met. And thus there is, as I said at the beginning, a direct connection between the manger and the cross. Peter Lewis, author of The Glory of Christ, points out that by means of the virgin birth, Christ entered the world guiltless of the sin of Adam. He becomes the beginning of a new humanity. Scripture calls him the second Adam, the restoration of the human race. Because he is born of Mary, he is truly human. Because he is conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is free from the inherited guilt handed down from Adam. And thus he is fully able to stand in our place, taking our guilt, our shame, our punishment. He could pay for our sins precisely because he had no sin or guilt of his own. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God through him. Now this brings to the forefront Paul's words in Romans 5 verse 6. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At the precise point of our weakness, Jesus was strong. He succeeded where Adam and all of us, all of Adam's descendants have failed. We were so helpless that we could not do anything to save ourselves. The truth of the virgin birth declares to us that our salvation is entirely supernatural. When God wanted to save us, he took the initiative and he gave us his son. We were helpless even to take the first step in the process. The truth of the virgin birth shows us that salvation is entirely by grace. 
God does it all because we could not do any of it. And why? Why would he do this? Why go to so much trouble? Well, it's found right there in the Bible in Jesus' own words. Say them with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have life everlasting. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you knew we were going to mess up. We thank you that you knew we were going to offend you and you loved us anyway. And at just the right time, you reached into history, loving us here and now and loving those in the past. And you gave yourself on our behalf so that we could have access to you and fellowship with you. Thank you for your amazing grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.